0: welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson.
1: Um, We need the results of all clinical trials, all brought together, synthesized in one place, in order to understand the true benefits and risks of the treatment.
0: That was Dr. Ben Goldacre on the exigency of correcting a disturbing lacuna in the current body of medical evidence. Dr. Goldacre is an epidemiologist and science writer. His first book, Bad Science, called out quackery, statistics abuse, and scaremongering in science and science communication. His recently published second book, Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients, calls to account both the pharmaceutical industry and the medical profession for failing to address the issue of missing and manipulative data in the field of supposedly evidence-based medicine. So how much is really missing from the currently available body of data?
1: Um, We know from the best currently available evidence that around half of all clinical trials for the medicines that we use today haven't been published. And that trials with positive results are about twice as likely to be published as trials with negative results. And worse than that, we know that everything that's been tried to fix this problem has failed. In fact, they amount to little more than fake fixes. They deliver false reassurance. So the best example of this is the FDA Amendment Act 2007. And that law said uh, you have to post the results of every clinical trial that has at least one site in the US within one year of completion to a website called clinicaltrials.gov. And when this law was passed, everybody said, oh, this is all fine, everything's been fixed. But it failed for two reasons. Firstly, it wasn't implemented. So there was no routinely collected public audit of compliance. When one was finally published in one of the top five journals in the world, Prail et al, 2012, we found the rate of compliance with this legislation was 22%. So four trials out of five ignored the law, which everybody has cited as fixing the problem of clinical trial results going missing in action. But secondly, it had a loophole so profound that it's almost extraordinary that people ever believed that it was going to be a useful intervention. Because it only required the sharing of results of trials that finished after 2008. Now, around 80 to 85% of the prescriptions that we write today are for treatments that are generic, so they're more than 10 years old. They come on the market in 2003 and earlier. That's how long it takes for trials to swim through and innovation to swim through. And that means that, you know, getting that all the trials from now on would only fix medicine in the year 2033. <laughs> What we need to practice medicine competently today is all of the results of all of the trials that have ever been conducted on all of the medicines that are currently prescribed. And that's not a ridiculous thing to demand. In fact, it's an entirely reasonable thing to demand. All of this stuff still exists. Companies are obliged to hold on to it if they're, if they're industry trials. And we just need to get this information. and it, it, it astonishes me that anybody even tries to defend the notion that it should be okay to withhold evidence about the effectiveness of, of treatments from, from doctors and patients. It makes a mockery of, of evidence-based medicine.
0: When you say half the trials have gone missing based on the best evidence, what is this evidence exactly?
1: So the systematic review data on publication bias. So, um, well, firstly, I guess people need to know what a systematic review is. It's an extraordinary thing that systematic reviews are new. Um, Up until about the 80s in medicine, if you were writing, let's say, a medical textbook chapter or a review article for an academic journal on the treatment of, uh, let's say, uh, the treatment of depression in patients with physical illness who are in hospital, then you might go, well, I can remember a couple of trials that I've seen on that already off the top of my head. I'll keep my eyes out over the next nine months until the piece is due. So I'll, um, I'll see any trials that come along in the journals that I happen to subscribe to anyway, which will be higher impact factor uh, journals, which we know are, are biased in their content and um, more likely to have more flattering uh, results. Maybe your friends will let you know about trials that they've seen and maybe you'll keep your ears open at conferences just in case anything comes there. So this very, this very inefficient but also very... very um, messy uh, approach to gathering data much like what a sort of 19 year old student would do kind of ra- randomly googling stuff and then throwing something together for a college essay would then get published in a medical textbook and become canonical and it's subject to all of uh, all of the, the the usual biases unconscious biases but also you know active cherry picking in in some cases So in the 1980s, people realised something had to be done about this, and we invented, and it is absurd that it had to be invented so late in human history, the idea of a systematic review. And that is a piece of science about science. So you go along and you describe exactly where you look and how you look. You say what medical databases you looked in. You describe the search terms that you typed in to get all of the the randomised control trials you possibly could. And you would get all of the studies with clear inclusion and exclusion criteria, all of the studies that have ever been done on this particular question in medicine. Then you'd extract all of the numbers for the main effect, and you'd put them all in a big spreadsheet, you'd do something called a meta-analysis, and you get the best overall summary of what the true effects of that treatment are. Now, this is one of the most important developments in the history of Western thought, I would say, but certainly medicine, it's, it's as big as the invention of the randomised controlled trial. and. It's this tool, which I've used wherever possible, to um, to gather evidence for the book. So for the question of do trials go missing in action, I haven't relied on having a look for a few trials myself, nor have I relied on the odd study about trials that go missing in action. I've worked from the best currently available evidence, which is a systematic review from 2010, published by NHS, NAI. H-R-H-T-A, and this summarises the results of all of the studies that have ever been conducted today on this question. It's dozens and dozens, and overall what you can see from that is that about half of all clinical trials don't go on to be published, and trials with positive results are about twice as likely to be published as trials with negative results. To find out if trials have gone missing in action is a little bit easier. All you need is a list of all the trials that you know that have been conducted and completed in a particular area, and then you can go and look for them in the peer-reviewed academic literature, see if they're available. So um, you might do that maybe by going to an IRB, an Institutional Review Board, or an Ethics Committee, finding out all of the trials that were approved to go ahead in a particular hospital or university or region, and then you can see if they've been published. If you want to show that there's a difference between the publication rate for positive results and for negative results, then you've got an interesting challenge because you have to find the results of trials that haven't been published, obviously. So one way of doing this is to go to regulators and get something called the drug approval package. Now, this won't contain all of the trials that have been done on a particular treatment. It only contains the very small number of trials that were done before the drug was approved for use um, as part of the approval process. So... That won't be all of the trials, it won't include any of the trials done after the drug came to market. In Brazil, Russia, India and China won't include trials on other uses of the drug, so an antidepressant being used for anxiety treatment or PTSD. But it is a useful representative sample of trials with which to explore this question. So um, one classic paper, which I'm interested in because I've practiced psychiatry before I went into research, looked at all of the antidepressants approved by the FDA. Over a period of several years, so that was all 12 antidepressants. And this paper found 74 trials in total, of which 38 had positive results and 36 had negative results. Then they went to go and find those trials in the peer reviewed academic literature, and what they found was very different. Out of the 36 negative results, only three were published. Although, actually, 11 of the trials with negative results were published in such a way as to make it look as if they had positive results, using various techniques of data dredging and outcome switching and all of the other tricks which I describe in that section of the book on bad trials. Um, Out of the 38 positive trials, the picture was very different. All but one was published. Now if you flick back and forth between those pictures, what you see is an extraordinary disparity. In reality, we know that there are 38 trials with positive results and 36 with negative results. But in the published academic literature, what you see is 48 trials with positive results and three with negative results. Now, to my mind, this is research misconduct. But it's research misconduct in a very interesting and diffuse way, about which, as much as industry is at fault, I mean, this is a problem for industry-sponsored trials and academic trials, but it also betrays a real failure of vision of a cultural blind spot in medical academia, because if, if you deleted half the data points in one study that you had done in order to get the answer you wanted, in order to make the line go the right way on the graph, I think we would both agree that you were guilty of research fraud. So what's peculiar is that we don't have the same view of people who delete whole studies from the evidence base, even though we know that the results of whole studies will be brought together and synthesised to create an overall picture. And so we know that the insults to the overall apparent benefit of a treatment will be exactly the same if you delete one trial with negative results, be exactly the same as if you'd simply fraudulently deleted data points from within a trial. And yet, people throughout medicine and academia and industry and regulators have been very, very reluctant to view that as research misconduct. And I think that's a a ludicrous failing.
0: In collaboration with the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, Sense About Science, the James Lind Initiative and the BMJ, Dr Goldacre started AllTrials.net. The campaign calls for the registration of all clinical trials and it hopes to generate progress towards this goal by leveraging the pressure of mounting public and organisational awareness. Given the toothlessness with which regulations have been enforced in the past, I was honestly a little bit sceptical about the efficacy of all trials when I first learned of it. It seemed potentially optimistic. But pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline recently signed the all trials petition, which Dr. Goldacre hopes might shift the industry landscape in favour of the high ground.
1: Now, um, companies are actively rewarded for withholding information about the effectiveness of their treatments in order to exaggerate the apparent benefits, and it's perfectly possible for them to get away with that. So every rational company would. It makes perfect sense. Actually, since GSK have signed up, I've slightly changed my view on this because um, there's actually a very interesting second-round phenomenon that happens now. Once quite a few drugs are manufactured by companies who've made a proven commitment to transparency on which they have delivered in a couple of years' time, then the market becomes quite interesting. So people have always said there's no incentive, no financial incentive to do the right thing, to share all data. But actually, um, if there is differentiation within a market with respect to how transparent a company is, then let's say there are two treatments which appear to have equivalent benefits. They both have a relative risk for you getting better from whatever the problem is of 1.8. One of them is made by a company where you know that you have all of the evidence and the other is made by a company who not only have failed to commit to share the evidence, they actively poo-poo the notion that they should even be asked, right? Well, a rational patient, payer, and doctor would use the treatment from the company where they know that they've got all of the evidence. Because if you're being offered two treatments which are apparently equivalent, with a relative risk for getting better against placebo of 1.8, but one of them you, you know that you've seen all the data, the other... Or the best you can know is that from the, the the best currently available evidence from a systematic review of all of the dozens of studies that have ever been done on publication bias, we know that half of all trials that are conducted and completed don't go on to get published, and that, and that trials with positive results are about twice as likely to get published as trials with negative results. do well, you'd be thinking that 1.8 relative risk from that, from that company's drugs isn't really the same as this 1.8 where we, where we know where, where we stand. So actually... I wonder if um, if the presence of diversity in the marketplace with respect to transparency could create positive financial incentives for transparency.
0: So what are some of the arguments against transparency that have been stymieing progress, and how would you address those?
1: Well, one of the things that I'm most pleased about with this book is that it's kind of flushed out the other side, because for a very, very long time, people were able to successfully avoid even having to talk about the problem of trial results being withheld. People would pretend that the problem didn't exist, that it had been fixed, um, and now they're in a position of having to pretend that it doesn't matter. So, firstly, there are people from industry claiming that um, that the public and and researchers and doctors can't be trusted with the results of clinical trials. And this is an extraordinary thing, but it's what it's what they're saying um, that there will be mischievous meta-analysis that people will do bad summaries of data and cause panic and havoc. Now, I think that's nonsense. I mean, the reality of science is it's built on transparency. You know, you, you don't have authority as a scientist because you've got lots of letters after your name or you wear a white coat. Science is built on Sharing your methods and results. The Royal Society in in London has this chiselled in its Latin motto over the entrance to the building: "Nullius in verba," on the word of no one. Tell me you're working. So, um, it's perfectly reasonable for people to have reasonable disagreements about how they interpret and bring evidence together. And that's completely normal and healthy. It happens absolutely everywhere in science. The idea that that shouldn't be allowable in interpreting the most important part of medicine overall, which is clinical trials. Does this stuff work or not? Is extraordinary. And it's also actually very naive about the public response to shifts and changes in access to information. Um, I mean, once this stuff's in the public domain, it becomes boring. Clinical study reports are long, boring technical documents. Very few journalists are going to go through them, and any attempt to make mischief will just... I mean, there are plenty of opportunities to make mischief in medicine already. I think it's probably a fixed volume of stupid media stories about health. So that's uh, that's kind of their main argument. Pharma, which is the US pharmaceutical industry body, after um, my book came out and after I wrote a New York Times piece basically saying we need the results of all clinical trials in order to make informed decisions in medicine as doctors and patients. They put out a very lurid and colourful denunciation in which they argued that, um, I say argued, in which they asserted uh, that uh, this was a completely impossible uh, request to meet because it would stifle innovation, because it would require releasing commercially confidential Information. I mean, you know, it, the extent to which the extent to which information about the effectiveness of a treatment is even commercially relevant is only in terms of how it would change whether people would use it or not. And you have to be proportionate. I'm kind of talking around this in very technical terms. It's absurd. You know, you, 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 we need to know if treatments work or not in order to make decisions about whether to use them and which is the best. The, the real harm comes actually not from treatments which do more harm than good. It's fairly unusual that actively harmful treatments come on the market. But we're commonly misled about which is the best out of two treatments. And the opportunity cost when you give an inferior treatment, even if it's better than nothing, is is significant. Patients want the best treatment and it's ridiculous to suggest otherwise. Um, and then they also tried to say that I was asking for uh, individual, identifiable, confidential patient information, which I'm... Very definitely not.
0: Trial rigging is also an issue. Statistical devices can be trickily employed to find wished for results.
1: There are lots of ways that trials can be flawed by design. You can switch outcomes, you can peek at the data as you go, um, wait for the survival curves to deviate by just enough to make it look significant, and then pack up your trial, write it up and pretend that you've got a positive outcome. You can uh, f- fiddle around with how you deal with missing data, that's a good way of, of, um, of getting a positive result out of noise. Um, <laughs> you can, uh, oh, it's endless. I mean, it's so clever and techy and nerdy and interesting.
0: You might wonder, given that, what's even the point of reporting all the trials if the trials themselves can get away with such manipulations? Dr. Goldacre argues that accessible full trial reports, including the statistical methodologies, would allow doctors and researchers to decide for themselves whether a study and its outcomes are credible. And, Science and the City listeners, this is Dr. Goldacre addressing you all.
1: You're the people that, that we need on our side to fix medicine. Um, my profession has acquiesced in the face of some preposterous flaws. We've demonstrated a, 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 an appalling lack of ambition and insight into several very, very important problems in medicine. And we have failed to fix them behind closed doors. The, the, the problem of trials with negative results going missing in action has been unresolved for three decades now. So if anyone is a member of any professional body, whether it's medical or academic or a patient group or anything at all, if you could sign up to alltrials.net, it's actually been really inspiring just over the last two months to see how A discussion can be moved forwards just by enough people, serious people, standing up and going, look, you've got to stop pretending that this problem doesn't exist. And it really is the, I mean, there's nothing controversial, there's nothing anti-industry about it. It is the single most important flaw in the fabric of the information architecture of evidence-based medicine. We cannot make informed decisions when half of all clinical trials are withheld from doctors and patients. And so anything that anyone can do to fix that, you know, you will have the pleasure of being, unlike our adversaries, on the right side of history.
0: The book, Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients, has a lot more on disturbingly pervasive bias throughout the medical evidence base, implicating aspects of academia as well as industry. That's it for this installment of the Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org, and please feel free to email us anytime at city at nyas.org.
1: Thanks for listening.